Hey, Real Talkers, you may have seen thousands of parents being inconvenienced with finding alternative childcare arrangements as daycares across Alberta invoke what they're calling rolling closures. The protest intended to grab the attention of provincial and federal governments over that $10 a day childcare program. And it's not just Alberta. Operators in multiple provinces say they're either going to pull out of the national childcare system or even close their doors. So who's responsible and what's the solution? We get into that in this episode, but first we'll sit down with Edmonton City Manager Andre Corbold a week after a gunman opened fire at City Hall. Find out what's been happening behind closed doors. This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. You know, in this edition of Real Talk, we're going to address something that's happening in our home province of Alberta as we speak. And it may soon not be just Alberta, as a matter of fact, because childcare operators and daycare operators are sounding the alarm that this long promised $10 a day daycare initiative funded by Ottawa, $30 billion over five years, just isn't working. They say it needs to be topped up. They say it's not keeping up with inflation. Sound familiar? So how are daycare operators and entrepreneurs responding in Alberta? Well, with a series of rolling closures. In fact, you may be listening to this episode from home today, where typically you'd be at work at the office, but you don't have that option because the place that typically takes your kids and looks after them, doing a heck of a job, I bet, just isn't open today. It's not because they've been closed down per se. It's because they're making that choice. There's a big association that represents tens of thousands of childcare spaces, and they're hoping to get the attention of the provincial and federal governments. We're going to talk to Crystal Churcher from that association of Alberta childcare entrepreneurs coming up in about a half an hour's time. And in just a second, we've got an in-studio visit from Edmonton's city manager. He was there in a committee meeting on January 23rd, just about a week ago, when a gunman walked right into City Hall and opened fire, deployed a Molotov cocktail, ultimately detained, if you can believe it, by an unarmed commissionaire, a security guard. Of course, the aftermath of this, probably not yet fully realized, and most especially by members of the general public, which is why I'm especially grateful that Andre Corbold has decided to take some time to shine some light on that scenario as it happened, the moments and hours after, and then, of course, in the week after as well. You probably know, or maybe it's not been on your radar, that Edmonton City Hall has been closed since this happened. And what else would you expect? There's bullet holes in the walls. There's glass shattered out. But what about the human toll that this takes? How does a city navigate a return to normal, if there is such thing, for the dozens of people that work there at City Hall and for the thousands of people that are employed by the city that wonder if something like this might happen at the location where they work? We're going to get into that in just 30 seconds. But quickly, a note to let you know that this episode is presented by the team at 
verifiable credentials. You may have seen this story in the news over the past couple of years, whether it's nurses, oil patch workers, even personal support workers, long-term care and otherwise. There's been no shortage of stories where a fake credential is putting people's safety at risk. Luckily, there's an innovative technology that's making credential fraud a thing of the past. Digital verifiable credentials are secure, cloud-based credentials that go way beyond traditional certificates or PDFs. You can't forge them. You can't falsify or alter them. And the best part about it, they're trusted, real-time digital credentials that live in a digital wallet. So you can view, manage, or share them from absolutely anywhere. And with WeKnow training, you can plug them seamlessly into your company's training courses. If this story is already on your radar and you want to learn more about using verifiable credentials in your association's training or credentialing program, you can check out verifiablecredentials.ca today. January 23rd, it's business as usual, so to speak, at City Hall. As a matter of fact, if you talk to anybody that was participating in the goings-on down there, it was a bit of a mundane day. It wasn't anything spectacular. Council wasn't meeting in sort of a town hall public forum on a contentious issue. There wasn't a lot of anger brewing. Emotions weren't running high. That is until somebody walked right in and started firing shots. Andre Corbold is Edmonton's city manager. He's been in the role for just over three years before that, a long career with the Canadian Forces. He joins us live in studio. Thanks for making time for us. No problem. Thanks, Ryan. This obviously, I mean, for, for a guy like you, and I'm curious to pick your brain because everybody walks through life in different shoes or different boots and, and people would experience something like an active shooter scenario differently uh for most people it would obviously be shocking uh, even terrifying for yourself with a long career in the military including deployments overseas do you think you experienced it differently than other people i i don't think so i think nothing prepares you for uh what happened uh, last week it was a complete surprise and i certainly didn't expect it as in this role in this place uh, for that to happen so you know i recognize things and sounds and stuff like that but really not prepared at all based on on that experience I so mean, you're you know, in an average normal committee meeting talking to the mayor and a whole bunch of other people can you explain to us what you heard and sort of what you thought right away yeah certainly we we heard uh one or two loud bangs outside the committee room i was actually annoyed at first because i was trying to answer uh, the right. mayor's question uh, about the committee we were talking about um and i i at first thought it was you know somebody throwing chairs around or something like that um but then we heard you know three more bangs and it was clearly gunshots and uh and then that's when uh, the clerk staff just uh, really you know came to life and did, did what they had to do in terms of the protocols they closed the doors we were moved to the right side of the the, the room uh in order to uh, be as safe as we could um, and then we, we carried on with those procedures. So you talk about protocols. Is this something that, that I mean, you know, kids in schools go through fire drills. Uh, the odd corporation does it. Everyone meets at the muster point. Had City Hall staff been trained or equipped to deal with an active shooter or an active threat scenario? Yeah, I would say to a degree, yes. I mean, there was some confusion in the moment because of the uh, Molotov cocktails going off there. As you can imagine, there was... Uh, it, in addition to the loud uh, sounds of the gunshots, there was also a fire alarm going off. And so uh, people reacted differently based on that. And what I found is people who saw and knew that it was an active uh, shooter situation did the right things. Many, in fact, did exactly what they were supposed to do and sort of took cover and, yeah. and uh, you know, hid in place. 
Um, and then the, the folks that didn't know that or were a little confused followed the fire alarm and actually exited the building, which I think was smart and good because in the end, uh, there were less people in the building involved during that time. Yeah, we, we, people can check out our January 24th episode if they want to hear from Edmonton's Mayor Emergeet Sohi and City Councilor Tim Carmel. Carmel talking to us about a scenario that, that is easy to imagine, which is sort of taking cover, if you will, or or taking refuge in a stairwell and then not knowing, you know, upon hearing that there's an active shooter, he goes, I know I'm supposed to get out of the building if there's a fire alarm, but I don't know what I'm walking into if I leave the, the you know perceived safety of that stairwell. I think everybody could, could relate to that type of, of scenario the mayor whisked away by security taken off property a lot of the counselors and many staff most staff uh, still on site what about you I mean, what was your hour or two three hours after like yeah so i would say as we evacuated the building um you know we we moved alternate locations uh, as as everyone did um i don't think the mayor was actually whisked away he, he actually stayed there for a bit because you know we wanted to uh, make sure same with some of the other counselors there uh, we got them. We got everybody to the designated sort of evacuation spots once we got them out of City Hall, and then uh, we were able to regroup uh, in some of the other City of Edmonton locations to start uh, doing what we had to do to to deal with the situation. So, how how do you handle a pressure like for people that don't understand maybe the role of a city manager? Uh, maybe you can explain it for us in in one or two sentences. You're essentially responsible. You oversee thousands and thousands of staff. Your role quite a bit different than the mayor per se. Uh, uh, but in the operation of a city, probably equally as prominent. Would you agree? I don't know about that, but I mean, there's a lot. It's a big responsibility. I'd say so. And we've got a lot of uh, amazing staff that help us. Uh, but the immediate action I took once we were able to regroup in uh, in Chancery Hall was to get the leadership team together and uh, make sure that we understood what was going on and what we needed to do. And I could tell you the the worst part of that day for me was the two and a half hours it took to confirm that nobody was physically injured or hurt. Uh, and that was a long uh, time it took because everybody had to do their jobs, including the uh, the EPS who who were able to go through the building and make sure that everybody was safe. Can you clarify for us? We've, we've, we've seen some of the, the video and I know that you, your office has made to us available some photos of some of the damage. Uh, we know that some of the shots fired shattered out glass for, for people that, that are a, a tiny bit familiar with City Hall or even those that aren't. Can you describe what was behind that glass? Like how how close of a call was this it still blows my mind that nobody was hurt yeah i think it's, it's hard to say i mean uh but uh, you know i don't think anybody was directly shot at uh as far as we know but uh certainly there was a lot of shots going into glass and you've seen some of the photographs of the damage and, and the staff yeah. were working on that really hard to, to clean all that up yeah the first clue but, i think that the general public had that no one was shot at was that there were no attempted murder charges laid yeah don't know about that all, all i know is that um you know Shots were in certain places. The glass was broken. Walls were uh, walls were hit, and uh, some of the glass w was hit. So, uh, ju and just grateful that nobody uh, was in the way of that. But let's be clear: we can't have, and and we can't tolerate. We don't want shots being fired anywhere in City Hall, um, whether they're aimed at people or not. Right. To say the least. Exactly. Uh, and, and in a few questions from now, I'm going to ask you what's going to change yeah. at City Hall, but. For the most part, while the city has continued to operate, it's it's not been business as usual. Uh, city Hall has been all but closed since then. Can, can you shine some light on what the last week's been like? 
Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say that we've had a focus on continuity of government. So a lot of business has been as usual in the city operations, uh, uh, not so much in City Hall, but certainly uh, conducting the operations. And as I indicated yesterday, you know, our core services to the city have gone on without without skipping a beat. Uh, what we have now tried to do is, uh, given that we uh, we felt it important to council committee meetings this week uh, so that we could get reoriented and reorganized, uh, we met with uh, the Agenda Review Committee of Council yesterday and proposed a schedule that gets us back on track in terms of governance decision-making of council no later than the 23rd of February. So that's what we're putting our, our heads to. We're also really focusing on wellness, wellness of our staff and people that were impacted by this incident. Yeah, I want to ask you about that because everybody's going to respond to this differently. I can't imagine anybody would just shrug it off. Um, I know that I would be, I mean, no disrespect by using kind of a, but I would be quite skittish, uh, I think, for, for probably the rest of my time working at a place like City Hall if this were to happen or any workplace that I was in. I mean, you know, I'll tell you a story in two sentences. I've worked alongside many broadcast professionals who were employed at a channel on Jasper Avenue, not far from city hall. When many years ago, somebody sent uh, an explosive device, an incendiary device through the mail, which arrived and was open and did explode. And that continues to impact some of those people, my former colleagues to this day. It's not the type of thing that everybody gets over for, for some folks, quite understandably, they'd never get over this. So how do you approach this as somebody that's in charge of overseeing thousands of staff and dozens of them that would have been on site in the building when that happened? Yeah, the first thing we got to do is bring the professionals in. So we we kicked into our support systems, our employee support systems. We have uh, trauma counselors uh, at city now working with staff, uh, offering individual opportunities to speak. Uh, and, and like anything, uh, you've got to prevent prevention helps, right? And support helps from professionals. So I can tell you, and I don't mind sharing with everybody that I saw my psychologist last Wednesday night Great. for an hour and we talked this out because I think that's important. And so, so, uh, mental health and which we know is a big deal in Canada now with the crisis we're in, uh, it's, it's like any other professional help you, you get the professionals in. Uh, so we are trying to offer that to every city employee that was impacted, whether they're in the room or not, because others were impacted. Same with council and their staff. And, and we're really encouraging people to, to step up and, and, and do that. We've got therapy dogs in, in the Century Tower uh, yesterday, meeting with staff and, and just helping them through and helping them understand what they need to do to, uh, to get back to work and, and how to process what they're feeling and what they experience. You almost, you almost feel like you should have therapy dogs and sniffer dogs there, you know? I mean, what's going to change on the security front? You talk to any politician. I mean, the mayor even said it to us in the interview last week. The last thing they want to do is have armed guards at the door of City Hall. They don't want metal detectors right at the front door. They want, they want there to be the perception that this is everybody's City Hall, that this is a gathering place. That's kind of the whole spirit of that square footage. But it, it, these things have happened before. I mean, there's been disturbance. There was a disturbance like just a week before. And then I think of even, you know, one example off the top of my head when the Uber thing was happening under the previous council and, and the, the, the taxi drivers, quite understandably, were furious. Uh, and there were some changes made. I remember some plexiglass going up because council chambers were getting a little bit more heated. I mean, this is next level from there. So what's going to change? 
Yeah, well, we're going to do a complete security review, uh, which is ongoing now. And um, I haven't made any decisions yet on that, which is why City Hall is not open at this point. I want to go through that uh, properly and get, get the advice we need from experts. And uh, we'll look at those recommendations and, and go from there. I think some things will change, but I am also committed that this is a public space. This is the people's place. It's, it's, it's not, you know, it's different from other uh, city locations, I would say, where that where, you know, the public access is, is not a requirement. But for a city hall to operate, it needs to have public access. And so we're going to figure that out, how it can be done. It's been done in other buildings across the country when things have happened, uh, not the least of which, uh, you know, uh, in Ottawa. So we will uh, listen to our, our specialists on this. We'll get some advice. We'll get some independent peer review of this as well to make sure we're, we're hearing all angles. And we'll come up with a plan uh, that, that keeps people safe and, um, and you know, we'll move forward. Do you happen to know, I mean, during those Harper years when, the, when that gunman gained access to Parliament, do, do you happen to know about any specific changes that were made to protocol? Or are you taking a look at that example in particular? I mean, it, 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 it's almost a parallel, isn't it, in a way? We'll look at everything. I mean, all I know is that, you know, I, I've been in uh, Parliament before and after those kinds of incidents and things are different. But the, the important point is you can get public access. You can get you can get in and, and to, into the people's house. So that's how we're going to treat this. Mm-hmm. We're going to figure out what what is the way to do it and how do people get access and how do they get access in a safe way where they can't bring a rifle in like happened last week. Yeah, I don't know if most people realize there's there's still a bullet lodged into the wall in the Alberta legislature right by the elevator when you walk in. I mean, this 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 stuff has happened happened before is it important what about the visual what do i call them triggers i guess the remnants of of, of the event yeah um is that a big thing for you that that city hall looked like it did before this incident before staff return yeah it's a huge thing uh for for staff and for the public and here's why because uh, because it was a traumatic event uh we don't want to or we want to reduce to the extent possible the way uh, folks might be triggered I, I i went in the building the other day and felt a bit triggered myself when when you saw some of the damage so i and i gotta put do a shout out to our facilities folks our uh, our fab our fab shop who are doing an amazing job at uh, uh you know fixing what needs to be fixed uh making it look like it was before uh, some of it will be temporary. Some of it will be uh, is permanent already. And it's going to take another six to eight weeks uh, before we get things like, you know, the things that are on high order uh, uh, with supply issues to get the, some of the glass back, for example. Right. So we found other good furnishings in place right now. We've made a, the, the folks have done a great job at making it look uh, really good. Uh, covering up bullet holes, uh, yeah. cover, covering, you know, cleaning the floor from from the burnt damage from the fires. That's important stuff. And, and it's uh, very important to people coming back, uh, both employees and the public. How did how did you handle the pressures of the public uh, needing the city to operate with, like, you know, council and public hearings and the like, as, as well as the needs of your staff? Like, how do you find that balance? What's that process like for someone in a leadership role? Yeah, I think what we do is make it clear that people come first, people's safety comes first. And I've tried to make that clear with staff from the very beginning. Uh, and that will process it. I, I also think that uh, it's important for me to communicate to all staff about what's going on. I think the biggest uh, issue you can have in, in an event like this is when information is not being sent out and people start to guess and think about what's going on. So I've been, you know, putting a message out to all staff every couple of days, uh, putting, you know, slightly different messages out to folks who work at City Hall, trying to explain to them what we're doing, what the decisions will be, how they will be done, and uh, and just getting people ready for, for whenever the return is. In terms of uh, continuity of government, I am really proud of the fact that the city 
continues to march on with with getting stuff done. All the core services, buses, waste, it's all happening, right? Everybody's doing except their for jobs. Everything except and, and for And the water. water is there. Well. Uh, and, and, and yeah, we can get into that if you like. But uh, but the reality is the, the core services are being done and council is engaged. Council is making decisions. We, we had that agenda uh, review committee yesterday. We're t- taking a look at everything. So, for example, we had a public hearing that, that has now been delayed. That means things to people like developers and people who need to, to get things done. So we've we've minimized that delay to the extent possible. We've worked with some of the proponents on those projects to see who really needs to get in at the next one that we'll do on the 20th of February. And uh, we'll get those decisions uh, done and, and, and keep moving forward. So hmm. that's really important from a continuity government perspective. Uh, Tony is listening in uh, in our YouTube live chat. She says, my first active shooter drill was so frightening. She says the facilitator who played the role of the shooter was so accurate in the role that I actually started crying. Tony says it was very, very intense. Um, Others are saying, you you know, I mean, um, you know, Alberta Girl says you got to have metal detectors in public spaces, no ifs, ands, or buts. And then you got others like David, who who basically says uh, the spirit of his comment is, "Ah, but you got to keep the place open to the public and kind of the spirit of that. I think of that class of grade one kids that was in there. And, um, you know, some of our audience members have suggested that they don't remember a whole lot from grade one, but I remember the real significant moments from grade one. Uh, You hope that those young ones aren't permanently traumatized from something like this. Uh, Did did that change it for you at all? Was there was there like an X factor to the scenario that that made you feel this a little bit more personally or that, that, that made this more than, you know, I mean, again, like I keep going back to your military training, but. I don't know. Military people are just trained differently. Like you guys are trained to react and respond and know what to do. But like, did did you find kind of this element of, of humanity that in the job wearing a blazer instead of combat fatigues made it a little bit different or, or hit home a little bit harder for you? Yeah, I think I had just as much humanity in my combat fatigues as I do in a, in a jacket. I don't mean to imply now, that you would. Yeah, um, but I, you know, look. Um, again, I think the thing that really hit me the most in that day was just being. So wanting to know if anybody was hurt and that two and a half hours was the worst part. Must have been brutal. Once we got through that uh, and we started planning and we knew, and once we get a plan, that's what I like to do is when we, when we have an issue, I got to figure out the problem, uh, problem solve. And then we start planning through it, which we did with the team. Then you start, you're able to start showing a path to everybody about how we're going to get through this. And it's a tough path for sure, but, but we will get through this together. And, and so that's what we've been focusing on doing. Getting back to, um, you know, the, the grade one students, I just want to say um, that, you know, the, again, the staff did an amazing job. Our, 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 our folks who do those tours around did exactly what they needed to do, got them in a, into a safe place, calmed them down, entertained them for the time that they they had to be there and, and made it as calm as possible in, in a scenario like that. We're so, so lucky to have the people that we do uh, for the most part, working with kids. That's going to be the second half of this episode. I'm yeah. not going to drag you into the childcare funding debate. Don't worry no, about that. No, please don't. Uh, is there anything that you would have done differently with, 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 you know, a week now to reflect on? I mean, it's still soon. It's still soon after, but is there anything you would have done differently? Yeah, I think I ask myself that every day, and, and uh, I think... Um, you know, a few things pop in like we, we uh, in the initial communications in, in the first day or two, I think, you know, we could have been more wholesome with some folks. I think we left some people off the list sometimes, uh, but we're working through that and we're, we're regaining those kinds of things. Um, you know, working with council has been really good. They, they've they've really 
given me room to do what I need to do and, and given us support to do what I need to do, but also, you know, done their jobs from a, from a governance perspective. So I think, you know, it's just, uh, if anything I could do different, I just wish I had more time in a day. Like there's just so many things that we've got to do and sort of we, we, we are prioritizing those things to get the right communications out. Um, and you know, we'll do a full lessons learn review of all this, uh, as we'll, as we should. Uh, but again, I think the priority has been getting the facility up and running, get the safety done and meeting certain conditions. Uh, what I don't regret is, uh, people have been bugging me all week about when, 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 when are we opening? When are we coming back? And, and I've made it very, very clear from the beginning that this is not a time-based decision. This is a conditions-based decision when it's safe when we've done the security view and when people are mentally ready to come back, that's when we'll come back and we will have those timelines, I think pretty soon, but I just don't have them today. And so we're, we're not going to overcommit from a timeline just because people want to know when. Right? So you're, you're not here to announce that it's opening today. What about the, what about the staff that may say, we don't ever want to come back. We love working for the city. We, we don't want to resign, uh, but we, we can't see ourselves coming back to city hall. I mean, is there, is there, thought gone into that already i would imagine yeah we're already starting to think about that the 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 good you know thing with the city is that we got lots of places to work from and we're very good at working remotely given uh, given what we went through with covid so but but not only remotely um you know we've got tower space and office space and other towers close to city hall so look we're gonna let people uh, and i've been very clear on this it, it's it's uh, their health first and, and that'll be number one. If that means they can't come back right away, then so be it. And we'll continue to, to work with them. I have also heard from employees who want to come back, who are anxious to get back and see sure. their colleagues. And so it's going to be different from for everybody. And my job is to make sure wherever they are, we will meet them where they are and, and do the best to, to support them. I'm obviously not a, a crisis counselor or psychologist, but you see it all the time. Like, there's people that go, I'm, I'm, I'm never going back there. I can't. I hear a door slam and I jump under my desk. And then there's other people that just, they need that routine. They want to exactly. get back to normal. This It's probably driving them nuts that they can't be back in their office, right? And when you say you want to make sure that it's safe again, uh, without, you know, at risk of sounding insensitive, uh, my understanding is that Edmonton police have been very clear that this was an isolated incident that, that, that they don't believe that there's a future risk or at least a sort of a sustained risk to the public. What do you mean by when it's safe again? Yeah. The, the first one there is just from a facilities perspective, literally making sure we are uh, up to code on the occupational health and safety code and the building code. So some of those windows that got smashed out left huge places where people could, if you walked in that space, now you could fall literally a whole story. So it doesn't meet the, the, the code, the building code. So uh, we are almost there. I, I'm taking a look again today. I think we'll be done today uh, in terms of getting it back up to code, which means the banisters are in place. It's safe. Windows have been cleaned up. We can't have shattered glass. That's not a safe place to, to work in. So we've cleaned all that, that stuff up. And uh, so once I'm satisfied that the building is now meeting the building code from an operational uh, health and safety perspective or an occupational health and safety perspective, that's the first piece. Second is doing the security review, making sure uh, we, we figure out what we need to do or if we want to change anything. Um, and then uh, 
after that is the the mental health of people making sure they feel safe in their heads to to come back and and feel like they're getting the supports so really three elements of that safety and the first is almost done uh, and the others will come as i get the the expert advice on that i want to zoom way out for a second yeah. for people that pay a lot of attention to, to municipal goings on in particular in alberta in particular edmonton you came into this role amid some real culture problems uh, within the city and I, i'm certainly not going to try to draw a direct line to this incident but can you update us on some of the work that's been done there and how you've been addressing that and and, and maybe if there is a correlation to this event how you think it fits in yeah i think um i mean uh, with a large corporation like this, people are always going to have different perspectives. And, and so what I try to do is, is really get all those perspectives in. Uh, I try to, what I call, flatten the organization from time to time so that you can really uh, talk to the front line directly, get understanding. I've, I've been trying to work with the union presidents on their perspectives as well and, and try to meet with them. Uh, so it's all about just understanding and, and coming into it with uh, with a, uh, you know, a desire to to seek to understand what people's perspectives are. So a couple of specifics are I, I created what I call CMEET, which is a city manager's employee engagement team. And there are people from different departments, frontline uh, supervisor levels that that we talk about stuff. And interestingly enough. Uh, at the last meeting we had, we talked a lot about mental health and are the supports there for people and what, what do people need? So I try to ride, ride the LRT. I try to get uh, into the front line, see what's going on um, and just talk to people. And, and then we bring those things back to our leadership team and we try to make the best decisions we can. Do you feel safe when you're riding public transit? I do. I do. I've been riding public transfer, transit for quite a while. I, I take the LRT from Clairview uh, two or three times a week uh, and, and I do feel safe. I also acknowledge that people don't all the time and, mm -hmm. and uh, I think sometimes it, it really is when you're on that public transit, uh, what time of day and what you're seeing. Um, and I do believe uh, it's gotten better uh, and we'll continue to put the pressure on, on doing more there. What do you think is one of the things that's making that situation better or improving that situation? Like, what do you think is the solution here? I think there's uh, a whole bunch of solutions, but I, I think one of the big things that's made a difference is presence. We, we have, you know, upped our, our uh, transit peace officer presence. We've upped our um, engagement presence and what we call our COT teams, which are not just transit peace officers, but... They are social workers who can get into the system and help people get the supports they need. And so that, that's been a huge increase as well as the EPS presence with their help teams where they've been involved. So, and just the partnership and coordination with uh, the social agencies, the police and the city of Edmonton. And you may recall that when we put the transit safety plan out in particular, we, we created this tri-party tri decision-making structure where, where it's not just uh, the city, it's not just police, it's, it's, it's us together with social agency making decisions on how we do this. Uh, the, the story that I don't know if people across the country would be aware of this, but many members of our more local listening audience would know about this sort of mandatory water ban that EPCOR has put in place. My understanding, a, uh, kind of a failure. Um, my understanding is it's related to some electrical cables. At least that's what they're trying to repair at the E.L. Smith water treatment plant in Edmonton. It, it, it's put the city in a bit of a precarious situation from a water supply standpoint. How, how does that impact you? Is that the type of thing that lands on your desk is that your problem so to speak yeah well i mean it's it's uh epcor we're, we're obviously working with epcor we're the we're the shareholder but we're going to let them do the operations and i i think they're doing a, a spectacular job with 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 dealing with this uh to be honest where it really landed with me first was making sure the city does its part so we have curtailed and minimized our water use so you know the outsides of our buses may not be as clean as you're used to
used to in the mm-hmm. next uh, couple of days because we're making sure we do our part as a city uh, with with our water consumption. And then uh, just delighted with uh, Edmontonians and everybody who is doing their part. We, we see people talking about it on community pages. We see, see people a little frustrated with it and wanting to get back up, up to speed, but everybody's doing their part. And so... Uh, I think that's really important. Um, I'm not going to pretend. I think there is ahead. some redundancy in the system. The fact that we have two water plants and the fact that one of them is down, but the other one is up and operating shows that there is a bit of redundancy in the system. And then, you know, uh, we're looking forward to this getting done as soon as possible. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to act like I know what's going on, but it's been implied uh, that, that maybe there's an. Infra- you know, we're hearing a lot about infrastructure deficits in Alberta. A lot of people are saying maybe that water treatment plant hasn't had a, the cash infusion that it needs to be up to stuff. I don't know if that's accurate or not you might have a better idea but it does fit into a bigger conversation as i know the city is projecting a 50 plus million dollar budget shortfall this year and I, we you know we talked to council we talked to those on the political side of things more frequently than we do people on the operations side and the politicians hate having to be the face of property tax increases but how does a 52 million dollar projected shortfall impact operations and in, in your job yeah, I think, uh, first of all, we're working really hard on that. It was $73 million deficit last summer in the second quarter. We brought that down to 52 in this in the third quarter. And I think we we've, we've have made more progress on that. I don't have a number for you yet, but we will at the end of uh, uh, the year. What that means is we're being really diligent uh, in, in how we operate. We're minimizing things where we can. We're, we're making, uh, doing constraints in terms of what we do um, in terms of city operations. I think in terms of infrastructure deficit, more of a longer term capital uh, scenario, not an operational fund, but more of a capital scenario. And yeah, we've had lots of really productive conversations with council about, you know, what, what can we do at, at what pace based on the, the available money. So, but that's a continual problem at every order of government sure. I've worked at. Uh, and so, you know, it's about prioritization and making your sure, you're sure you're doing the right thing. So you talk to council and then council talks to Alberta municipalities and then Alberta municipalities talks to the province and then the province will invoke the feds and then it gives us talk show fodder for months. Yeah. And but, that's kind of how it works. Yeah. And I would say though that in and amongst that, that talk show fodder there, are, we get decisions, right? We, we get, we get allocations, we get supports, uh, and so, you know, I always focus on uh, when that money comes down, what decisions are made and how we can put it to the best use. Right. So, yeah, there's some fodder out there, but there's a lot of uh, good decisions getting made in, in between all that, that that provide practical solutions to, to getting things fixed. Andre Corbold is Edmonton's city manager. Uh, you know, I mean, if, if you know, you have a chance to address your staff or when you do, um, I think it's safe to say that, that everybody in Alberta's capital city and beyond is, is so grateful that that was our number one thought. Same as yours. Like, is anybody hurt? They're going to be a, a heaven forbid any fatalities here. And uh, the fact, I mean, m- maybe we can close just recognizing this commission error that, that stopped this thing in its tracks. I've heard, I don't know if you can confirm or not. I've heard that, that the gun jammed and that's why the guy threw it down. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but, but, but whoever it was, this hero, um, and I hope that they will be named or if they choose or be recognized, maybe you can tell us if they will be um, stopped what what could have been a total disaster had this person had 
plans that went beyond what materialized. Yeah, I'm just really proud of, of uh, the work this commissioner did. And, and I won't name him because he's asked to, uh, be, to, to remain an well, honest. We'll respect that. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, he reacted great. Uh, very proud to see he was a veteran as well. Oh, is that right? Uh, Canadian yeah, Forces. For, former former soldier in Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Ah, there we go. Uh, so had that background, I think, um, and some experience and just really activated in the moment. He keeps on saying he's just, just did, did his job. Uh, well, that's but, what soldiers but I think, say. I think he went over and above, uh, and I can guarantee, I don't know what it'll look like yet, but I can guarantee that uh, we'll be working with the Commission Air Corps uh, on you know how this is recognized at the appropriate time. Okay, good. Andre, thanks for doing this. Thank you. Appreciate we really it. appreciate your time. That's Edmonton City Manager Andre Corbold. Uh, let us know what you think about that, and of course, I'm sure that you have thoughts that go beyond where this conversation did. You can send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. In just a second, we're going to take a look at these rolling child care closures. What's this all about? But first, I got to let you know that this conversation is happening, see, Andre, with the support of Real Talk partners like our friends at California Closets who want to remind you that, yeah, yeah, we know that we're almost into February and, yeah, you promised yourself that you would get into that decluttering, get organized January. You may not want to call it a New Year's resolution, but you were supposed to be doing it like a month ago, but we're not judging you and nor is the team at California Closets. We just want you to know it's easier than you might think to get that ball rolling and to get yourself on the right track. Back to enjoying your space, taking back control of your space, walking into your home at the end of the day and going, ah. It all starts with a free consultation with the California Closets design team. Then their installers go to work, and I'll tell you, the finished product will blow your mind. You can check it all out, including what they're doing in garages by visiting their website. That's californiaclosets.ca. Our friends at Friesen Brothers want to remind you that February 1st is coming up. If you're listening to this on Wednesday, it's tomorrow. It's Thursday. And that means that at all Friesen Brothers locations, all 16 of them across the province, it's 15% off grocery purchases of $75 or more. That's obviously a huge deal for families that are trying to stretch those dollars. And if that is you, and if we're speaking to you, make sure you check out the family essentials flyer online at friesen.com that's f-r-e-s-o-n.com or in store you can view the flyer our family loves the fact that not only is it quality food for low prices but easy family meal solutions they've got recipes they've even got videos to show you how to make the food they're going to make you look good friesen brothers is alberta owned and alberta grown at Athabasca University, you know, they're always accepting applications. It's a little bit different than the standard or average or everyday post-secondary in that September's not always back to school and May and June isn't always finals and graduation. It's because the tens of thousands of students at AU are all learning, studying, and advancing their careers at their own pace. That's the whole point of it. Their online degrees and courses are designed so you can complete your education wherever and whenever it works for you. Did you maybe bang out a year or two at a community college? Maybe you went to university for, I don't know, three years and then life took over and you never finished? They've got great transfer credit initiatives available. You can transfer to an AU program easily. You get all the details online at AthabascaU.ca. Learn more about financial aid and awards as well at Athabasca University. And one note for those of you that this spring have eyes on a reinvented outdoor space. Your backyard, your front yard brought to life. 
we want to recommend you trust that project to Eden Landscaping. That's exactly what my wife Carrie and I did. We built up our budget to the point where we were ready to make a move and we had all kinds of plans. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Our plans didn't totally jive with the budget. So it was great to see Mike and his team help us nail down our top priorities find some efficiencies, and then also reiterate where the real investments should be. We're thrilled with the turnout. I can't wait to show you this spring. Johnny, we got these Japanese lilac bushes that are going to start coming in in the spring, and I'm super excited to be posting about that on my Instagram. It's a pleasure to work with the great listeners at Eden Landscaping, and you can find them online at landscapeedmonton.ca. We'll be checking in with a senior spokesperson uh, with uh, an association of child care operators in just a little bit. Um, You may have seen this, uh, like thousands and thousands of Alberta families are being inconvenienced this week. And for some of you, you may use stronger language than that. I'm not making light of it. You show up to your daycare. Hopefully there was some proactive measures, maybe an email or a phone call ahead of time. But they're going to be closed, uh, not because they don't have water, not because their power is out, and not because they've been ordered to close, but because they're trying to make a point. They're trying to make a point with rolling daycare closures. I don't know if they're playing off the rolling blackout thing that Mm. resonated with Albertans (laughs) as the grid was under threat a couple of weeks ago, but rolling daycare closures this week as they're trying to get the attention of the province and the feds. This is all around that underfunded daycare lament and we're hearing about it from operators which is understandable inflation's up costs are up we're hearing about it from the province as well which i think is kind of interesting uh danielle smith uh alberta's premier calling out the feds uh you may have heard this on january 30th that's yesterday she says i recognize that child care operators are in an extremely difficult situation thanks to out of control spending by the federal government that's increased inflation and significantly impacted operating costs the current cost control framework says the premier established by the feds does not recognize inflationary pressures that child care operators are facing. And, and she goes on from there. She says, over the coming weeks, says Danielle Smith, I'll be meeting with our incredible child care operators to work on solutions together. There's a few things that jump out at me on this. Number one, it is kind of hilarious to talk about out-of-control spending from the feds and then ask for even more money. The other thing is that Alberta was very proud, and it wasn't the only province. Ontario was another, but Alberta was very proud uh, under then uh, Minister Rebecca Schultz in that uh, portfolio to be negotiating its own deal with the feds. They, they didn't want that baked in Ottawa solution. Alberta wanted its own. It wanted its own plan. And so it negotiated with Ottawa over quite some time and ultimately reached an agreement that obviously the province of Alberta or the government of Alberta, let me say, was very proud about. I remember that release at alberta.ca at the time, you know, the federal provincial child care agreement. And the Alberta government was, was crowing about how it had successfully negotiated an agreement with the feds to increase excess accessible, affordable, and high-quality care, talking about how they were helping Alberta families save money in two ways, with affordability grants and with child care subsidies. And so now it seems, of course, a little strange on one hand to have the province pointing the finger back at Ottawa, complaining about a deal that it negotiated, uh, but at the same time. And number two, I guess we just expect this, don't we? I mean, when's the last time an order of government took complete responsibility for something that wasn't working the way that it was supposed to work? Now, the feds on this front have basically been unapologetic. 
they they really have. I mean, federal ministers are talking about this and basically saying that the provinces knew what they were getting into. The provinces knew the deal when they signed on to $10 a day child care. That's uh, Families Minister Jenna Suds, who says that provinces like Alberta, quote, had their eyes wide open when they signed on to that $10 a day child care program, says it's now up to the provinces to make it work, uh, despite the fact that they're seeing growing pushback from daycares that say that this program is going to make them go bankrupt. It's sort of hard when you're trying to wrap your mind around this, that whole $10 a day idea. I understand why it's so important for families. For a lot of families, it's been a game changer. Mm -hmm. And I understand how much money that Ottawa is already putting into this. And and we're going to get emails, I guarantee, from people that are going to say, it's not Ottawa's money, it's our money. I know what you're going to say. you're not wrong about that. It's still not enough. But how is it going to be enough? $30 (laughs) billion a year, pardon me, $30 billion over five years, so six a year. Yeah. Uh, you know, equitably, uh, you know, based on population and needs spread out by Ottawa based on those individual deals with provinces and territories. So, mm-hmm. so, so you're looking at $6 billion a year, uh, but the math just doesn't add up. No, and you, you've you got childcare. You know $10 a day is not enough. It's so great for families that need it. <laughs> of course. One of the things that I've heard people debate is whether or not everybody should qualify. And, and there are some, and you've looked at past programs, some families that have qualified, some families that have not qualified for it based on need and i think that for the most part people would suggest that families under a certain income threshold or with other factors at play should qualify for subsidized child care while others shouldn't uh, we got an interesting email and this was from riley i wanted to give riley credit uh, she wrote in on january 3rd so this was like almost a month ago um and, and we have mm-hmm. a working list of, of some of the you know the segment ideas and roundtable ideas and interviews that we're working on and then you know real life stuff happens like shootings at City Hall and then things get bumped down the list but Riley had put this on our radar by way of her personal experience about a month ago and I wanted to give Riley credit I did email her back personally and let her know we were looking into it but here we are about to talk about it today Riley says you know a few weeks ago I was informed by my child's daycare that there's going to be a a rate change in the new year and as I read the fine print before signing that notification form I did a double take when I read that it was going to be a rate decrease of almost $175 a month. And I know for a lot of people, it was way more than that. Mm-hmm. Riley says, with the cost of everything else in life going up, this felt like that scene from that Ikea commercial. Remember the lady running out when she got the great deal? She's oh, like, yeah. start the car, start yeah. the car. Riley says, it wasn't until speaking with a number of colleagues and friends in a similar life stage as me with children in childcare that I learned how profoundly our daycare operators are being negatively impacted by that affordability grant program. Riley says, don't get me wrong, the cost savings have every household with a child in daycare feeling like they've won the lottery, with the cost of childcare being nearly cut in half since January of 2022. But I also believe that the average person assumes that our daycare operators are functioning like business as usual, when in actuality, a deeper dive reveals that they're, in many circumstances, in a precarious financial situation. Riley says, coming out of COVID, the bulk of childcare operators were already super stressed financially, and this added burden could very well result in a number of childcare centers having to close. Not exactly the outcome you're looking for when you're trying to drop the cost and increase the availability of this service. Riley says, I don't pretend to understand the nuances of daycare funding. Us neither, Riley. Uh, But when I'm hearing alarm bells from the people who are in charge of the budgets at my kids' daycares... To the extent that they're saying it's not a sustainable funding model, then it behooves me to reach out to my elected officials to request that our government meet with stakeholders 
to ensure that a balance is struck between families obtaining a high-quality, affordable daycare and daycare facilities being able to keep their lights on and pay their staff a fair and reasonable wage. I want to put you on the spot as an average person. Everybody loves Johnny bringing the every person's take to this. <laughs> How would you manage this? Would you, do you like the idea of $10 a day across the board for everybody? Do you think it should be staged free for some people, $10 a day for others, 25 a day for others, and full price for others? What do you think is the mm-hmm. uh, equitable or fair way to do this? Yeah, I do, I, do, I do think, like you're saying, there should maybe be stages for income because I feel like $10 across the board doesn't help someone who's making you know thirty-five dollars to $45,000 a year and has three kids. Uh, and I don't think it really should, <laughs> I'm not saying they shouldn't get it, but someone, you know, making a hundred thousand dollars a year with one child, you know, I, I don't really think they need the $10 a day. So I think there should be stages for this and we should help people who need it more. And I, I will say this. Yes. When our first guest was talking about the LRT, I got on the bus yesterday after getting on the LRT, uh, to go South side. And I saw a couple they couldn't been over 22 years old, both of them. Uh, three kids. They all looked about a year, a year and a half, two years at the most apart. So you've got the mother holding maybe a three or four year old. You've got a maybe a five year old sitting on the on the chair next to her and the father standing up with a baby in a stroller. And I'm thinking these guys need more than 10 bucks a day because I knew we were going to talk about it yeah. for child care. Whereas, you know, someone who has an SUV. And a good job, and and both parents have great money, and and they've got one child. I don't think ten dollars is even on their radar, or if they even need it, right? But um, yeah, I really think the people who need it most should get more. But I think anyone who gets the ten dollars a day, I mean, don't don't get me wrong, they're grateful. But I mean, you can't put your kid in in a good daycare. Uh, on my side of the city, at least, you know, for ten dollars a day, I don't think. I mean. It, you you do childcare. You pay monthly yeah, or what is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm not the family manager. I don't. I don't, I don't know how we pay. I <laughs> but just you know, know ten dollars a day is probably and ju- if, we're not if it $10 is, it's day, just yeah. covering it. You know, yeah. just getting it. Heidi uh, in our live chat. Love seeing Heidi Bergstrom in our live chat. She's been such a great advocate on past episodes. Good morning to you, Heidi. Um, she says there is an element of income requirement to get to that ten dollar a day subsidy. She says the federal grant though applies to everybody regardless of income. And that's what I was talking about. The provincial about. grant, she says, is, is a sliding, sliding scale. scale. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, I, I, I don't, like, I, you know, you'll hear from people and like, what is, oh my gosh, this is such a, people are going to clip this tiny little part of me and call me an asshole for 10 years. But, but like, what is financial need? Mm-hmm. Like, there's the obvious financial need. There's like the single parent out there that's working two jobs, that's doing everything they can. Sure. And they're trying to, they, they know that their kids' boots don't totally fit this winter, but they're hoping they can get them to March or April when mm-hmm. they can get into the shoes. And, and the lunches aren't as as nutritious as they would like. And like, sure. there's there's that. There's there. I mean, we look at homeless encampments. We look like there are people in extreme financial. I'm not talking about that. Mm-hmm. That is obvious. But when you start talking about families that like, I guess what I'm trying to say is to suggest that a family that has a, a, du- a dual income type scenario where there's a higher earner in that family and they've got the nice house in the suburbs and they've got two vehicles and one of them is an SUV with leather. Do they need and they, the federal they grant maybe have a, They maybe have a trailer. Well, but here's my point. Like people also spend what they make. That's true. And I'm not saying it's the job of the feds to bail everybody out because you bought a holiday trailer and a snowmobile in the same year mm-hmm. and you're having a hard time make your payments. But like a lot of people believe that a subsidy 
for something like childcare should be extended to everybody. Yeah. I'm going to be, I'm kind of of two minds on this. I honestly feel like I'm of two minds on this. I'd be curious to know where real talkers land on this. Um, we're going to, we're going to talk to Crystal Churcher in just a couple of seconds and, I, and I'll, and I'll pick her brain on this. And I'll also recognize right out of the gates that some people, and I've seen it online and I'm seeing it in our chat and I'm seeing it in emails that we're receiving are also cynical of what's happening with this organization. They kind of wonder where did this organization come from? And is this organization carrying water for the provincial government calling out the feds in this scenario? So so we're going to get to that in just a second. Before we do, every single Wednesday, we have a chance to head out to the mountains and basically remind ourselves of all the opportunities that lie in wait out there to make my Jasper memories. And it's very, very, very exciting for me and anybody else that loves getting out into the mountains with one or two planks strapped to your feet to let you know that our friends at Marmot Basin have now officially opened their new knob quad chair. Now, if you know Marmot Basin, you already know that there's fabulous snow there. You already know that the vista views are almost incomparable in the Rocky Mountains. But you probably also know that that knob chair, that double chair that had been there for decades and decades while charming was due for an improvement. And boy, did they ever improve it. (laughs) The new quad chair, the new knob quad will take skiers and snowboarders to an unload elevation of, get this, 2,518 meters. And they'll give access to the Cirque. Uh, The Cirque is the newest opened expert terrain, as well as the peak. Uh, Forget about strapping out and hiking. It's going to take you all the way up there now, which I know some of you hardcores are going to be choked about because now everybody can get up there. But that is the beauty of it. It moves at a speed of 2.3 meters per second it can carry more than 1200 people per hour put it this way it takes under eight minutes from load to unload and it is an absolute game changer for the upper mountain it joins marmot basin's four other lifts that shuttle you all over the mountain for those panoramic views i was gushing about plus great runs for all skill levels from the beginners maybe skiing or snowboarding for the very first time i recommend their lessons they do an amazing job out there they've got childcare on the mountain as well for the real young ones and then of course they've got all their other chairs open now too you can learn more details including why they were named uh, to a Reader's Choice Award from Traveler Magazine in 2023 by visiting their website, skimarmot.com. Let's get into this. Rolling childcare closures. You don't hear about that all the time. It's a bit of an unusual circumstance. And uh, there's a, a team. Uh, there's, as a matter of fact, an association representing thousands and thousands of childcare spaces of Alberta's childcare operators and Crystal Churchers here uh, to speak to us on their behalf. It's the Association of Alberta Childhood Entrepreneurs. Crystal, thank you so much for making time for us today and welcome to Real Talk. I think this is the first time you and I have chatted. It is. I, I'm excited to be here today. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. I was talking about these minus 40 temperatures a couple yeah. of weeks ago. And we heard about the, the potential of these rolling blackouts. And I thought, boy, this is sure effective messaging to talk about rolling childcare closures. Uh, how did we get to this point? No, we've we've been at this for two years to uh, really raise awareness and bring these issues forward. Um, you know, we've, we've had success as an association, as operators, you know, to get messaging out there to expand, um, our, you know, federal agreement in Alberta to include private operators, but we felt 
that this was just, um, you know, coming through our province without really transparent information for families to understand where we were going in childcare and what our system was going to look like at the end. Um, we felt that we needed to take some, you know, critical action to really bring awareness um, to the public and to parents. This is, uh, we read, before we talked to you, we read an email from one of our audience members named Riley, and uh, she had had, it sounds like, a pretty moving conversation. She emailed us right after she talked to to her children's child care operator, who basically told her something that no parent would want to hear, which is that they don't think that their business is sustainable. Um, can you explain to us, since these changes were implemented, since Alberta signed on to this federal deal, and, and, and Albertans started seeing the benefits, the early benefits of that $10 a day incentive, exactly how that impacted childcare operators. Like when it came to the bottom line, uh, they weren't just receiving $10 a day, but, but, but where's the stress coming from and, and why is it most exacerbated now? Sure. Um, well, we're two years in, so I think that, um, you know, it's taken time for these problems to really come to the surface and, um, you know, the, Provincially, the way that our program is funded is not going to have an impact on all centers. Um, some centers signed into this with higher fees than others. Um, some, you know, have, you know, a mass um, like amount of centers. They can carry debt and, and loss a little bit differently than small operators. So it, it is different all across the sector of who's going to be impacted. But enough centers are impacted that it should matter to our government moving forward. Um, you know, when, when operators signed into this agreement, it was the beginning of 2022. We were coming out of COVID. A lot of us had been kind of asked um, to keep fees low and compassionately low to encourage parents to come back into childcare after, after all the closures. Um, and then we signed into this $10 a day program and our fees were locked. So for a lot of centers, veteran centers that have been in this program since the start, we're locked into fees that are really not reflective of true costs anymore. Um, and when we did sign that agreement in January 2022, we were required to reduce our fees to parents by 50% immediately. So that was the immediate reduction that parents saw. Um, and that's the affordability grant program. That was, you know, okay for the first two years. Some operators were struggling. Most of us could make it, it work. Um, but every time there's an increase of a reduction for parents, it means that the operators have to reduce our fees further. So for this agreement we're at right now, our interim agreement, January 2024, for 15 months, we've been asked to reduce fees um, to about eight, you know, down about 15%. So parents are paying, you know, $15 a day at the most. Um, a lot of parents, if they're subsidized, are actually paying nothing. So operators how the system works, this is so confusing and I, I hope that I'm trying to kind of come across very clear here. Um, how this works for operators is we reduce our fees on the first of the month, the parents pay the remainder, we wait till the end of the month and then we can put a claim into the government to get that money back. That takes 10, you know, five to 10 business days. So we're essentially carrying that cost of this program for 40, 45 days. Um, with 50% of that, we could still manage to pay our operating costs, you know, rent, wages, those kind of things. But as of January of this year, operators are only able to access about 15% at the most of their revenue on the first of the month, which puts them in a really difficult position to be able to finance rent, utilities, wages for the whole month while they're waiting to be paid back by the government. That's where the the kind of viability of centers is, is um, you know, at risk. And a lot of small centers that have been 
running at really low reduced locked fees for two years with increased costs, increased inflation, are coming into this in a position already of carrying debt and just not having access to further you know, cash to borrow to continue in this program. So, Crystal, you've got Alberta's Premier Daniel Smith yesterday pointing the fingers at Ottawa, saying that, you know, because of their out of control spending, it's, you know, prompting inflation. And, and you know, that basically this is their problem uh, to figure out. And then you've got the federal families minister, uh, Jenna Suds, basically saying that the provinces went into this deal with eyes wide open. And, and it's up to them, basically, I'm paraphrasing, uh, to navigate these cost challenges. In your assessment, whose fault is this? Or let me say, whose problem is this to fix? Unfortunately, it's going to be parents and families problem at the end of the day, right? This all comes down on to operators and families to navigate what's left of our childcare system at the end of this rollout, um, which is why we felt it's so important to continue these conversations and to raise the issues. I think that, you know, there's there's fault on, on all levels. Um, you know, we have essentially a government takeover of our childcare sector across Canada. And they have rolled out a $10 a day program without really understanding, I think, the true costs of childcare and understanding that each province has its own style of childcare, its own, you know, sector is made up of different types of operators and different stakeholders. It's different in each province. So to roll out a one size fits all childcare system across the country is just not a feasible option. We're also looking at, you know, provincial government who has, again, not done proper consultation with operators. They're not engaging on the ground childcare operators in a way that they can learn how the sector works and learn what you know they can do to create these systems that actually work on the ground. I think these ideas of $10 day childcare sound amazing, but I always am questioning where did that number come from? What can you actually buy for $10 a day? We were just you talking about that before you joined us. It does like I understand that this is subsidized. I understand that. Uh but yeah. like $10 a day and I get and, and in my opinion would you be willing to tell me your personal opinion? I'm curious on this because in, in my opinion, there are families uh, that should be paying nothing, uh, that should be paying zero. Uh, yeah. the, the hand up that childcare can be for these families, it could be transformative. Um, and then I'm okay with the fact that at certain income thresholds that there is absolutely no subsidy. I'm okay with that. Um, and, and hey, to go on the record, when I hosted a terrestrial talk radio program, I argued for a flat tax for a long time. So maybe I've come a long way. What do you think the structure should look like? Well, I mean, we have saw subsidy increase to $180,000 for households now. Um, it, it doubled. It used to be $90,000. Now it's one hundred and eighty. dollars um, I think that we could support our lower income families better under this program. I think that we're looking at a situation where there's not enough funding to really um, stretch this across the province to all types of childcare in all spaces. So I feel like if we're offering it to people that are in a $180,000 household income, Maybe we could look at reducing some of that down to families that, you know, are in the lower income bracket and really, like you say, offer support where it's needed. Um, but I, I think I think this this program, unfortunately, is flawed in so many, so many levels um, from the beginning. Again, it, it was rolled out so fast um, without really 
the proper consultation to make it really effective and really use the money in a way that impacts the the most families who need it. Mm. Um, we're talking to Crystal Churcher from the Association of Alberta Child Care Entrepreneurs, and you're like looking over your shoulder, like, do you guys know I'm? Doing <laughs> I'm in this? a school right now. Do you guys so know I'm you're in a school right now. Do Do you have five <laughs> more minutes for me? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I, I want to ask you about some of the criticism and, and I don't know if you've seen this online or not, but we were getting some emails since we announced that you're coming on with us. And there's some people that are under the impression that you're just carrying water for the provincial government. They believe that you're, you're, you're maybe even in a way connected to the provincial government or the United Conservative Party. Can you tell us about your group and what's your response to these critics? Um, I mean, you can't, you can't win every battle, right? Um, I think that we're a new association in an industry where the associations have been, um, you know, here for years, decades. Uh, this is not a, a fast or easy narrative to change across the country. Private operators have not always been welcomed or appreciated in childcare. It's considered a public sector, and I think that there's a lot of ideology um, and rhetoric, rhetoric around quality versus, you know, business model. Um, and we've challenged that for two years. So we're not everyone's favorite, for sure. Um, but I think that, you know, we have always looked to work with whatever government we have in, in power in our in our province. I mean, they're the ones that unfortunately are or fortunately, depending on what, what your your beliefs are, are going to work for for us as operators and work for families. So, um, you know, we are not a political party. We are just an association made up of volunteers. Most of us are our moms who own small businesses who who want to make sure those um, childcare businesses are viable and, you know, offering the services that we created for families. So, no, we don't have any political, um, like, okay. connections with the party other than just always trying to keep our door open and be willing to work with whoever can help help us in, in child care. That's what most associations do. I want to let people know that that I did speak personally with uh, Provincial Minister Cyril Turton about this. Uh, spoke with him at the Chamber Ball on Saturday in person, and then I spoke with him yesterday as well, and, and he tells me that his team is working on his availability to come on the show and talk about this to figure out what the province's plan is. Um, Chris, let me ask you, this is just like sort of a layperson's type question, but let's say hypothetically there's a daycare that um, I don't know, maybe it's like middle of the road or more of an affordable daycare and more of an, an affordable or lower income part of town. I'm trying to paint a picture here uh that was you know charging its clients like i don't know 30 40 a day let's say ish i don't know uh and uh and then under the 10 dollar a day program so like they're getting 10 dollars a day from the parents and then they're getting like i mean in theory like 30 a day from the feds but then there's another fancy daycare that has like ipads and those electric little hummer vehicles that the kids can drive around and, and they get like foie gras at lunch on sourdough toast and, and you know that daycare is like 115 dollars a day um and then they're getting 10 dollars from the families and then they're getting like 105 from the feds like i can't imagine how, how does this work when you talk about in alberta we want a free market we want choice we want diverse options like that's kind of what albertans want in a child care context can you explain to us lay people how the funding actually works and how the daycares are still getting the amount they were getting before under this new program yeah so there's um a misconception that it is actually truly ten dollars a day it's not that is a ten dollar a day average across the province so a lot of families i would say majority families in alberta will never see ten dollars a day um that is not how the system works. You have to reduce your fees to parents down to that um, level. So whether right now in Alberta, we're at $15 a day. So most parents will not pay more than $15 a day. The government will pay the rest of those fees. 
Um, but like I said, operators are locked in, so there's no fee increases. Um, you may have an, a center that was charging higher fees or, um, you know, came in at the top of the market where you have a center that is, you know, was charging compassionate fees coming out of COVID. And those centers are going to have a different perspective on how they're impacted by the funding. The thing that we're trying to raise awareness on um, to operators is that we are not arguing with the concept of affordable childcare. Families in Alberta deserve affordable childcare. What we're saying is that you need to really, as an operator right now, regardless of your business model, for-profit, not-for-profit, whatever, pay attention to your numbers because there is no way that this program is not having you bleed out money every month. We have um, approached the Treasury Board as an association with a letter that was um, created to, to demonstrate with numbers, to make it really easy to understand the bleed of finances through the whole sector. And we figured that the average childcare center, based on 100 children in it, is losing over $171,000 since they signed into this program. And that's a massive amount of money to ask childcare operators to lose to be able to participate in affordable childcare. I got a, a viewer by the name of Sharon in our live chat right now who's wondering if this has been such an issue for two years, how come this wasn't more of an issue during the provincial election in May? Why wasn't your association more vocal? You know, we have been very vocal. Um, but like I said, we're a new association. Um, we're up against, I would say, um, rhetoric and ideology around where the role of private childcare is um, in, in the Canadian system. Um, with some powerful associations that don't always welcome our opinion. And I think that it's been great that we've had the media coverage we have in the last month, but um, that hasn't always been the case. And, you know, it's not for lack of trying. We, again, are, are volunteers who who uh, put as much time in as we can while running our centers and raising our own children. So, um, you know, we, we did work with within the provincial um, election to try and make sure that all you know, parts of, of the election, everyone understood the issues. Um, you know, childcare is not always an easy issue to explain on a political platform. Um, and also, you know, going up against a model of advertised $10 a day system and trying to say that there's, it's not working is also a bit of a political issue, right? Mm. Um, you're, you're really taking on this promise and this like, golden gift to Canada from the federal government. And, and that doesn't always make you popular with with Canadians either. Yeah, I, I want to get into the whole for-profit idea um, in, mm -hmm. in, in just a second because we've got some interesting comments in our live chat. But first, we, we received an email uh, to talk at ryanjesperson.com from uh, Jennifer who says she's been working in childcare in Alberta uh, since the late 90s. So so I, I've not even read. I'm going to read this cold a little bit to you, but I, but I would be curious in your response, um, Crystal. She says, number one, regarding the, the timing of government payments to programs, she says, this isn't new. We've always been a month behind. We get paid for the prior month, like two weeks into the current month. Uh, she says it was the same way back when I started in the late 90s. And I understand that the initial amount received from parents is now smaller than what we were receiving prior to the increase with the affordability grant rates. But all programs were initially given a transition grant to bridge that gap. And, and programs should have set that transition money aside to use as a float for future months. And she says, and regarding this complaint that 
a 3% increase isn't enough, uh, says Jennifer. Never in the history of childcare do I ever remember increasing fees by 3% every year, nor have centers ever increased fees in line with inflation. It was typical to increase by half a percent, like five bucks a month, as much as 10 bucks a month, or once a year at most, sometimes skipping years. But the only time fees were ever increased beyond that was in response to funding cuts, which we've definitely had. She says, I understand that inflation's higher than that, but we've never increased fees to match the rate of inflation. That's absurd. She says, I understand everyone's entitled to their opinion, but I don't think some of these issues that are being presented are actually valid. Uh, I'm assuming Jennifer's watching us speak right now. Uh, So what would you say to her and and everybody that just heard what she had to say? I would say that um, everyone's going to have their own opinion. And what is a you know, what other centers are willing to take at a loss or, you know, take as far as government control over their services and fees um, and versus what other people are is going to be different. Um, You know, I own a private business. I invested in this space. I do not appreciate having my fees capped in any form that is below the inflationary rate. Whether I choose to raise those fees to meet inflation or not, that should be something that I have control over. I think that that's where we're going with this is that I don't think anyone in any sector should be asked to take a loss to participate in a government program. And, um, you know, to Jennifer's, you know, response about the the transition grant, that transition grant was amazing. We all appreciated that two years ago when we had to transition into this program and reduce fees by 50%. Um, But it's, you know, I I would say, Jennifer, read our treasury letter. It's very clear about the shortfalls of every part of this program financially. Um, While the numbers sound good, they don't line up and they don't actually give us back the money that we're putting out to be a part of this. So the transition grant was $212. We averaged it out to be about a $540 reduction for that same month that operators were asked to make in order for parents to instantly see reduction in fees. So we were shorted over $300 by the government in that transition grant two years ago. There is no way that that transition grant payment um, from two years ago would be something that people would have available that would even actually cover the cost of what they're they're putting out to transition into this next phase of this agreement. So I would say check your math, um, do your numbers. A lot of operators are unaware of the losses that they're actually incurring until they see it written out in front of them. Um, you know, unfortunately, this is a sector that is um, not always business minded. Um, a lot of us work on the floor. We're in the programming side of, of our centers and not necessarily in the, the bookkeeping um, back end side. We've, we've got an interesting uh, comment here from Travis and and uh, I'll have my own opinions. Um, and, and this will be my last question to you. I know that you've got a lot to do today, Crystal. I appreciate your availability. Uh, Travis says, and I don't even know that this is up to you to defend, but he says, how does your guest defend a for-profit model when it comes to childcare? He says, why is childcare not a public service? He says, there's no role for private care. It is morally abhorrent, says Travis, that it's not a publicly provided service. It pays for itself because both parents can work and pay taxes. I've got my own thoughts on this. I'm going to share them <laughs> after we thank you because I actually think to Travis, be careful what you ask for um, and, and the political yeah. blowback on suggesting that. Anyway, I'll do that in a minute. Um, that um, is a political powder keg. But what would you say in closing? <laughs> I mean, I have a lot of opinions on that. I, I'm a mom of two young children that have utilized childcare. Um, I am also a childcare operator, so uh, I I have lots of opinions. I, as a mom, don't appreciate um, a government standardized 
nonprofit childcare system. I like choice. I believe that um, the choice for where my child is in care and the, the structure of that care, type of care, um, is my right as a parent to choose. I don't think that the government should have a role in, in creating childcare systems. And, and I think if we look to the other public systems in our province and country to see how well those are working, um, we can get a quick answer on, on how well government does in creating these kind of systems. Um, this is my opinion. This is not, you know, the opinion of our full association or anything like that. I think that whether you believe that childcare um, should be made up of private operators or not, the idea of a sector being rolled out that um, just takes the investment from people because they're in that space is completely, I think, unconstitutional and um, very un-Albertan. Um, we have invested in a space that was open for private investment. We represent 70% of all childcare in Alberta. And I think that in itself demonstrates a high need and a high appreciation by Albertans for our model of childcare. Um, I think if you want to have a, a private, you know, if you want to remove the private sector from childcare and just have a non-profit public model, then go ahead. That is, you know, you're right as a Canadian, I guess, but you need to respect that there are private operators in this space and you, you offer fair market value for our businesses and spaces. And I think that this federal program is expropriating our businesses right from us. Um, we've lost value in our businesses under this, um, you know, rollout of $10 a day. And I don't think that any Canadian should have their businesses expropriated yeah. just from a government program. I, I just want to pick on one tiny little thing you said, and that federal program that's expropriating your businesses, in your words, was also negotiated and agreed to by the provinces. And so in Absolutely. my opinion, uh, you know, they can walk and they can shoulder this one together and they can figure Absolutely. this out together. They Absolutely. can prove to all of us that they can work together. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you love to see Danielle Smith and Justin Trudeau at a news conference together announcing that they have solved the childcare problem in Alberta? Mm -hmm. uh, this is Crystal Churcher speaking to us with the Association of Alberta Childcare Entrepreneurs. You can learn more about what they do by checking out abchildcare.org or checking out the link in the chat. Crystal, we kept you longer than we asked for. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Ryan. I'd, I'd love to come back anytime, especially if you have the minister on here. I think him and I could have some really great discussions around this. Yeah, I'd be happy to facilitate that. And in the meantime, uh, you have my email. Shoot me a couple questions, a couple fastballs you want me to, to pitch at the minister and we'll make sure he sees them, okay? <laughs> Okay. Have All a great right. day. Thank you so much. Thanks, Crystal. That's uh, Crystal Churcher, uh, a childcare entrepreneur herself, and then a spokesperson for this association. Uh, when it, when it comes to you know, somebody said I think it was Travis that said it was it's morally abhorrent um, to have a sort of a private delivery model here. Uh, I, I understand that people want to ensure that we have well funded quality childcare for the families for the children that need it the most. I think we can all agree on that. Um, but I've done enough talk shows over my career to know that you will never find even close to consensus on how people believe that child care should be delivered and funded. There's no way. And there will be some members of this listening audience, some of you long time, some of you this is your first time, uh, that will believe that the government should, uh, whether it's the federal government or probably the provinces, makes more sense for the provinces to administer it. It's their wheelhouse. Some sort of government overseen public model that's subsidized entirely by the province you have to understand what a line item that would look like on the books on the alberta budget what that would look like like she said even the fact that you currently have 
a business landscape, because that's what it is that encourages investment in child care centers. How excited are you? I mean, unless it's right next door. You, you wouldn't believe the nimbyism. I'm going to pick a fight in my own neighborhood right now for anybody that knows where I live. They wanted to open this beautiful new child care center, and then people started freaking out because there, there was going to be cars coming in the morning to drop the kids off and cars coming in the afternoon to pick the kids up. And they actually killed that child care plan in its tracks. You wouldn't even believe it. I mean, it literally drove a stake through our street. It was unbelievable uh, how contentious that got from the people that had been so desperately wanting a quality child care center in their neighborhood and those that wanted nothing to do with it. And that was just one example, but that was almost quite literally in my own backyard. So that's the one that I can most closely relate to. You got a province, Alberta, that has always valued choice. You hear people, Crystal did it, everybody does it. Danielle Smith did it just the other day. People talking about the Alberta way. People talking about how we like to do it in Alberta. There's that idea of that entrepreneurial spirit. It's one of the reasons that this province has been hardwired for success over decades. And it's something that Alberta should be very proud of. And in my mind, something that Alberta should never change, should never evolve away from. But it does come with trade-offs, and it does come at a cost, right? We want choice in education. And so you've got private schools, and you've got Montessori schools, and you've got homeschooling robustly supported by this provincial government. And I know some of you have feelings about that, and we're going to be talking about parents' rights and all that starting tomorrow. That's when we're expecting that legislation coming down from the United Conservative government. Hell, we've already talked about it for two almost full shows this week. So you've got choice in education. And then there are those, the advocates for public education, and bless them, and I don't say that lightly, that argue that some of this choice and some of the ways that the choices are funded means that public education takes a bit of a hit. We've also got private operators in the healthcare space. Not as much as some people would like, but you can pay $350 or $400 a month for a membership at a private medical clinic that will ensure you can see a doctor whenever you like and tap into all kinds of resources like dietitians and other advisors, professional advice. Or, of course, you can navigate the public system. This government's not entirely dismissed the idea, in fact, quite the opposite, of looking to private solutions for surgical backlogs and for wait times. So there's that. There's private options. I'm not going to start drawing lines between childcare and liquor stores, but there's no more options for choice and more opportunities for entrepreneurs in, for example, the liquor space or the cannabis space than in Alberta. Because that's the way we're hardwired. And so the same thing goes with childcare. The model has been that there should be incentives for people to take risks. That's what entrepreneurs do. And why take risks if there can't be rewards? Now, some of you are going to be lighting your hair on fire when I'm talking about this. But the fact of the matter is, if you want more childcare spaces to open, hell, we talk about affordable housing and we talk about appealing to developers. If not developers, who's going to build all these spaces? And so there's got to be incentives. And that's the role where the feds come in and the province and the municipalities, right? You don't want municipalities. You don't want the province in charge of building all the affordable housing. Just ask Edmonton how that's going, having government, having municipalities in charge of land development. It's a disaster. So you got to make things appealing. And so I guess that that's probably what Alberta's tried to do, is to incent investors to open their own childcare spaces. 
And so then when they do, and then it's not working out, and they're threatening to close their doors because it doesn't make financial sense for them, these people weren't born into some uh, under some moon where it was their responsibility to ensure that the childcare problem was solved, even if they're bleeding money at the end of every month. Now, I don't know about the administration of this. I'm very grateful for Jennifer's email. She sure sounds like she knows what she's talking about. I think that it makes sense to have a balanced perspective on this. The feds probably need to step to the table here after acknowledging that inflation's been an issue in every other area of every other Canadian's life. I mean, the feds are talking about what they can maybe do to get grocery costs down. So what are they going to do about childcare? But let's not let the provinces off the hook here. The provinces are the ones that didn't want to sign on to the federal model, much like Alberta and the carbon tax, right? Alberta wants to go its own way. It wants to negotiate its own deal with the feds. And so in your life, in your professional or personal life, when you negotiate a deal, and then the deal doesn't work out the way that you hoped it would. Whose fault is it at the end of the day? Now you're going to say, oh, what do you want, Jesperson? We're all just supposed to look in the mirror and point our fingers at ourselves and go on with our days? No, but let's have a reasonable and informed approach on whose job it is to figure this out. Minister Cyril Turton did say he's going to speak with us. I'm hoping that's going to be tomorrow. Sometimes I do these things to kind of put him on the clock a little bit, you know, but we're going to work on that to get his take on what Alberta intends to do about this. And we'll take a bigger look. We'll zoom this out as we do on this show to see what other provinces and territories are doing. I suspect at the end of the day, we're probably going to look to Quebec and everyone's going to say, well, look at how their model's working. And then that's going to annoy everybody in Western Canada. And uh, I jest, I jest. Talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can reach us with your thoughts. We'd love to hear from operators and investors in this space. I would love to hear from parents that are watching or listening to this at home right now because their daycare is experiencing one of these so-called rolling closures. This show is nothing without your feedback. And this show is nothing without our sponsors. And that includes our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy, who have a very simple message for you this time of year. And that is that they're hiring. And it doesn't matter. You're going, well, I'm not an electrician. I don't know how to install solar panels. Doesn't matter. They're looking for office administrators, sales personnel. They're looking for HR professionals. They're looking to staff their offices and build their teams in Edmonton, Calgary, Lethbridge, and beautiful Kamloops, BC. Kubi Renewable Energy is Western Canada's busiest solar installer and award-winning business recognized by a number of different associations and chambers of commerce and for good reason you can learn more about what it's like to work at kubi by checking out the careers link at kubienergy.ca and our friends at complete care restoration they always want us reminding you that they are the only real talk partner that hopes you never have to call them but if you do, heaven forbid, experience some sort of sewer backup that floods your basement or a burst pipe or in the summer months, we're expecting more drought this spring, more drought this coming summer, heaven forbid, a wildfire or some other incident could be asbestos, could be the discovery of black mold. Do not go at it alone. Do not leave it in the hands of somebody who is not a trained professional. Complete Care Restoration has earned our trust. They're the ones that built our studio, and that's why we're giving them two thumbs up. You can make initial contact with them at completecarerestoration.ca. Make sure, in case of emergency, look to Complete Care Restoration. 
So we're going to be looking at this child care story to see where it goes. We're paying attention to the Hockey Canada story. We now know the five names, those former Team Canada players that have been charged with sexual assault, including that bizarre scenario in Calgary with the Flames, Dylan Dubé, the team uh, essentially suggesting that he lied to them, telling them why he was taking leave. We'll be following that. And coming up on Friday's Real Talk, you know we present a Real Talk roundtable to wrap up every week of episodes. We're putting a panel together of people with lived experience, informed perspectives on what the so-called parental rights legislation could mean long-term for the Albertans of today and the Albertans of tomorrow. It's why we do what we do because we truly care and we believe in the value of real talk and we thank you for sharing that value. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook-Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepard, Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a Relay Project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com. 